I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation. Hello, uh, Rational Fear listeners. This is the fourth greatest moral podcast of our generation. These are long-form conversations with climate leaders that come out monthly on this very feed. And joining me is co-host and fellow Bertha fellow, Lynn Doe. G'day, Lynn. Hey, hey, Dan. What's going on? Now, I know something that's going on in your life. You suffered a major life milestone this week. Congratulations on enduring life to reach 30 years old. Well done. Thank you. I feel like I have finally evolved into a fully-fledged human. I think this is when I begin my adult years. Is this <laughs> is this how it works? Yeah, uh, well, you, well, you and I were meant to start many years ago, but I only became an adult when I turned 36, so that's different. Oh, I've got six years to go then. That's, <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, I'm really enjoying this extended youthful years and just trying to proclaim claim that I am young at heart, if not in actuality anymore. Well, I don't want to um, put any kind of climate things in context for your age, but by the time many of the nations who have committed to net zero by 2050 reach those targets, you'll be 60. How do you feel about that? Oh, devastating. But, you know, when I started doing climate stuff, everyone was talking about 2020 and, you know, all of the ambition that was needed by then. Uh, And someone surfaced up a video clip of me in my, you know, teenage year saying, in 2020, I'll be 30 and hopefully climate change. Anyway, it's like very, (laughs) very glib. It's awful. That sentence reminds me that there were so many Greta Thunbergs before Greta Thunberg and you were just one of them. Just one of them, yeah. And, you know, I think I just didn't have a catchy enough name and I didn't do anything as bold as striking from school. I'm still very diligent. I think had I known um, then what I know now, maybe I should have started striking a little bit earlier and we wouldn't have to be talking about 2050 and when we're 60. Well, people who are on this journey with us include new Patreon supporters, including Carl, Christopher Pierce, and someone called Grandmaster Too Sweet. Thank you, Grandmaster Too Sweet. I'm recording my end of Irrational Fear on Gadigal land in the Yora Nation. Lynn, whose land are you recording on? I'm on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Sovereignty was never ceded. We need a treaty. Let's start the show. Despite global warming, a rational fear is adding a little more hot air with long-form discussions with climate leaders. Good, 
and bad. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The heat waves and drought. Greatest. Mass extinction. Moral. We're facing a man-made disaster. Podcast. They're the climate criminals. Of our generation. All of this with the global warming and that, a lot of it's a hoax. The greatest moral podcast of our generation. Goompog. For short. Yes, and this week, or rather this month, we speak to two giants of the Australian writing community on how to have difficult conversations with your family and friends about climate change. It's a it's a pretty good time of year for this episode to come out, wouldn't you say, Lynn? Totally. I think the holiday season um, is going to be great initially because we haven't seen people due to COVID lockdowns and whatnot. But after a couple of hours, you'll be like, oh, right, that's my (laughs) uncle there who's maybe a bit of a climate denier. Is that my cousin who doesn't believe in vaccines? How do I broach some of these topics? And I think climate's been a hard one to talk about for years. Well, let me tell you, the two guests we have on the show today are going to be able to help us through those tricky conversations. We've got Sarah Wilson and Dr. Rebecca Huntley and... uh, uh, they are uh, the conversations are great. I had a really good time with them. But first, Lynn, let's let's rip into this month's climate news. Uh, there has been a metric shit ton of climate news this month. Incidentally, a metric shit ton was all the carbon that Chevron managed to capture and store at the Gorgon plant in WA this year. Hey! <laughs> climate niche climate joke for everyone. Are you overwhelmed by how much climate news has come out in November? I think like in November, but honestly, this entire year as well. I think second to COVID, surely climate has sort of been really up there in terms of things are constantly being announced, both like good and bad, which is great, but very overwhelming and very surprising. First up, the Treasurer isn't happy that financial institutions are deserting fossil fuels. So there's only one thing a Treasurer can do, launch an inquiry. According to the Nine Papers, a Federal Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, has thrown his support behind a proposed inquiry that will grill financial regulators and banks over plans to pull back on lending or insuring on mining projects because of climate change. This is a, this is a weird story. It's like the Treasurer uh, isn't noticing what's happening around the world. <laughs> yeah, he's not at all about the macro trends. It's only about the micro and only about what's happening in his own backyard. Should we be so surprised that a government that's spent the entire pandemic trying to sell expensive gas to Australians and trying to sell coal to China who are refusing it, is it any surprise that a government that's racked up the largest debt in living memory is giving away billions in gas royalties that they can't do the maths on fossil fuel investment? Not at all. I don't think we're ever getting back in the black. And, you know, and even though I'm 30 now, still a millennial at heart, and it sometimes can feel like it's much harder to get a loan for a mortgage than it is to get a loan for a big coal project. So it feels like if I just changed a couple of words in an application, it'd be like, great, here's the money, like go right ahead. So it's really disappointing that the government's trying to make that all the more easy. Yeah, yeah. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be trying to buy a house where you only own the first six inches of soil. You need to be digging underneath that. Yes, got to got to dig deep, got to just go big or go home. Uh, it's kind of interesting, like, it's so funny how, you know, if the government can't get their way on something like this, they have to go, oh, we need an inquiry. <laughs> we need an inquiry. We should get an inquiry going because it seems like the science and financial markets are wrong again. Yep, everywhere around the world and even, like, from some different state governments as well. It, it just does not seem to make any logical sense at all, which um, I guess is not surprising when it comes to our government. Well, it's certainly not surprising that... That, uh, Australia wasn't invited to speak at the UN Climate Ambition Summit last week. Uh, was that something that caught you by surprise at all? It didn't catch me by surprise, but it was definitely a bit of a gleeful moment. I could not believe 
that of all people that we were snubbed by, it was Boris Johnson. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that says about ScoMo, but that is not, that's not something I'd want to be known for. Well, it's really interesting because Boris Johnson, of course, is hosting COP26 next year. So he's got to kind of be on the front foot. He's got to look like he's acting on climate change because everyone around him is coming to the party next year to be part of it next, next November. So he's got to actually, you know, be one of the leaders. And so that really puts him in an odd position. Uh, I think it's so funny how, you know, Scott Morrison, uh, two weeks out from the climate uh, ambition summit, said he's not going to use Kyoto credits anymore when trying to kind of meet the Paris targets, and that would have been a good enough thing for to allow him to speak at the climate it's ambition summit. It's sort of a summit. bit of a toddler reaction, right? Like set such um, unrealistic and unmeetable like expectations, throw a really big tantrum, and then at the very last minute, be like, okay, maybe I'll concede, maybe I'll do this, and like lots of people are like, hey, that's great, but it's like, but was it really? Yeah, the whole the whole conference is called the Climate Ambition Summit. There's nothing ambitious about not cheating. Like that's not ambitious. That's the bare minimum. <laughs> it's so well interesting. Well done on not doping. Here's some of the things that are announced on that Climate uh, Ambition Summit. The UK announced they'll cut emissions by 68% of 1990 levels by 2030. That's a further 10% increase in ambition. The EU committed to a new target too, 55% of carbon emissions compared to 1990 uh, by 2030. Uh, Israel and Pakistan have committed to not building any new coal plants. I'm sure that's uh, harder for Pakistan than Israel to do. Uh, but China also has committed to a quarter of energy consumption to come from non-fossil fuels by 2030. 15 countries committed to much stronger NDCs or nationally determined contributions. Lynn, for people who don't speak climate, what is an NDC? So an NDC, um, I can't believe, wow, sorry, I was just so eager to answer that because I clearly do speak climate and climate wonk, the kind that doesn't get invited around to dinner parties. That's right. Um, So one of the big things that came out of the Paris Agreement was that every country agreed to an NDC, so this nationally determined contribution. And the whole idea is rather than listening to that big global world order and doing things that might not fit for your country, governments could consider what their domestic obligations were, what other issues they had going on, all of those sorts of things, and determine how they were going to reduce their emissions by how much and when by. Uh, And one of the things that I think is a really great feature of this like whole NDC acronym business is the idea is you don't just lock in your goal once, you actually lock in your goal and then every couple of years you revisit it and you reassess based on how well you've been able to do. So if you like smashed it, great, let's go a little bit harder and keep pushing for an even better personal best essentially. Is this what they call the ratchet mechanism, Lynn? Yes, I don't even know if ratchet is a real word. I have honestly <laughs> looked it up in the dictionary before and been like, is this hatchet? Ratchet. ratchet what, am I, yeah. what am I saying here? But it's just this whole idea that we are ratcheting up. So ratcheting, I think, means increasing. Again, don't know if it's actually uh, that in the dictionary, but it's how climate people use it. Right, excellent. I believe it's a old school, like it's an old school tool, like it's a ratchet, it's like a spanner. You, you kind of uh, pull it and you pull it like on a nut. Like mechanical. Yeah, it's a mechanical thing. Yeah. Also at the Climate Ambition Summit, the UK, France and Sweden will stop financial support of international fossil fuel projects. It's not just Australia, just Frydenberg. Uh, also, net zero targets have moved forward from 2050 by Finland, Austria and Sweden. Um, also, the Small Island States Coalition committed to net zero by 2030. And there is going to be a ton more money from for the Green Climate Fund to support developing countries to skip the whole fossil fuel part of their industry. 500 million euros from Germany, 1 billion euros from France. Now, when you compare all of those incredible announcements to Australia going, oh, yeah, you know what, you know, we have been cheating the last 20 years to meet our, uh, our <laughs> climate emissions, you know, 
I'll tell you what, we're not going to cheat anymore. Since 1997, we've been filthy little cheats, but we're not going to do it anymore. Do you think that is a good enough thing to put on this, uh, put on stage in front of the world? It's so embarrassing and I really hope people continue to mistake me as being from Austria rather than Australia <laughs> with, um, you know, some of their recent new announcements. Happy to move to Vienna. <laughs> well, a couple of other things quickly. Jacinda Ardern declared a climate emergency for New Zealand. Does this have any kind of real-world implications, Lynn? I mean, yes and no. I think it's one of those things where we love to stand some politicians and Jacinda is like definitely one that those of us in Australia really love. Um, So it caught me by surprise that Greta Thunberg was a bit critical of that. But I think it's right. Like, can you really stand a politician? Can you really do that while still holding them to account? Yeah. Uh, A couple of other things quickly. Uh, One sad thing and one happy thing. The sad thing is more than $3 million of the Australian Future Fund has been invested in the Carmichael mine, the Adani Carmichael mine, uh, the 60, <laughs> which you believe that is that's a three million dollars isn't a, a lot of money, but it is our money that's being invested in this dog of a project that might not even get up. And when I say might not even, highly unlikely to get up. I don't know how many years we've been talking about this now. No one will finance this project, yeah. there's no viability for it, but we're still pouring money literally down the drain. It was discovered by Rowana Ruff, who is a human rights lawyer for the Australian Centre for International Justice. And basically, she did an FOI on where the money was going if it was going into this project um, because Adani has strong links to the Myanmar military regime and supplying them or with logistics and support for their military, which of course has huge human rights implications because of their, their treatment of the Rohingya population. So that is pretty interesting. Like not only is Australia committing their own human rights, but they're indirectly supporting uh, Adani's support of Myanmar's human rights um, problems. The company we keep increasingly becomes more and more depressing, both on climate and human rights issues. Let's wrap this news segment with something a bit more hopeful. South Australia's Liberal state government predicts that the state could boast more than 500% renewable energy by by 2050. This is the Liberal government in South Australia saying Love it. South Australia is going to become a net exporter by 2050, up to 500 times their own capacity of renewable energy. Isn't that incredible? It really is. And these are the big numbers that you want to hear, you know, on top of Tasmania being powered by 100% renewable energy, South Australia leading the way. It's really clear that like Liberal governments can do something, just maybe not at the federal level right now. It's just head-buttingly crazy that the federal government can't even jump on board with any kind of climate action because they've pinned themselves into this corner where it would be politically uh, impossible to do. They've dug their own grave. (laughs) They really, really have. Um, It feels like the Liberal Party needs a little bit of help talking about climate change um, within their own ranks because clearly they're quite divided on just how we should tackle this issue. That's it. I'm going to start a new company. Uh, Irrational Fear is going to pivot to helping solely the Liberal Party communicate about climate change. I'm going to take and just that- with one another. Like, let's just start there because it feels like there's some good eggs <laughs> in that camp and, like, you know, we've heard from a few of them on this podcast. So how can we spread that good message? I haven't got that Liberal Party money yet, so please donate to the Patreon still. It's really required. <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> anyway, let's get cracking into the interviews. First up is Dr Rebecca Huntley. Um, she and I discussed the ins and outs of communicating climate change and climate science with basically anyone. Her book is called How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference and uh, you'll find out by listening to her that um, there is a, there is a couple of things that can help you with your dinner party conversations. You're listening to the greatest moral podcast of our generation. 
first of all, I'm a big fan, so thank you for doing this. Oh, I'm a big fan of you. It's a mutual fan association appreciation society. I just remember seeing on stage years ago going, you, you were talking about something, and I just thought, she's the funniest person I don't know. <laughs> well, I always used to describe myself as Australia's funniest market researcher. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I, which is a claim that I can back up, having been to many market research conferences in my time. That's what we do in Irrational Fear. We bring the biggest brains with the biggest laughs to the program. <laughs> so it's great that you're, you're joining us. Um, you've written a book about how to talk about climate change in a way that makes a difference. In fact, that is the title of the book. Yes, yes. Uh, wordy, wordy. That's all right. Uh, you're, you're now on a podcast called The Greatest Moral Podcast of Our Generation. So I'm, <laughs> I'm familiar with wordy titles. I thought it'd be great to get you on to talk about exactly what your book talks about because in the lead up to Christmas people are going to be hanging around their lunch yes. tables with relatives who may not agree with them on climate change and I thought this could be a great primer for Christmas lunch. <laughs> I had a bit of a testy kind of moment last Christmas talking about energy and climate with one of my cousins and thankfully a lot of other my um, other of my cousins are lawyers and they came to my defence at Christmas lunch but it was a very interesting it was a very interesting so conversation. Happened? We're talking about renewables and I was just saying well it's you know this government I was saying that this government needs to invest more in renewables and really make a market incentive to have less coal. And I think my cousin at the time, probably still is, is a big 2GB listener and uh, said, well, I'm absolutely crazy that uh, he went down the baseload power route and he went down yeah. about all these kind of talking points that yeah, yeah. the carbon lobby have. Yeah. And then uh, thankfully I've got some cousins who have done some extreme reading around energy. <laughs> and they're right. like, well, actually. <laughs> so we're having this fact-off debate. Did he, did he mention nuclear? We should put nuclear in the mix. That's always a bit of an indication of... No, 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 okay. no mention of nuclear. Okay. I wonder why. I don't know. No, yeah, no, no mention of nuclear. Um, it got a bit testy there around mm. lunchtime, and mm. I thought, well, heading into Christmas, maybe there's a better way to handle this conversation. Yeah, let's talk to Rebecca Huntley, who's written a whole book <laughs> about it. But the very yeah. virtue that you've written a book may not mean that you you'll have much success at your own Christmas lunch. Well, look, it's interesting. I suppose the first thing I need to say is that this year, more than any other year people are probably people's tanks are pretty low and they're probably feeling pretty stretched emotionally because of the year and a level of uncertainty uh, so I would approach these conversations with loved ones with even greater trepidation empathy and understanding <laughs> that being said we aren't we don't have the luxury of not talking about hard things because people are tense because people are going to continue to be tense and of course Christmases are always going to be a trigger point but people are tired so I think you, you approach it with that kind of um, perspective. I think what's really difficult, and I think a lot about this in writing the book, and even more since writing the book, because now my whole life is the climate movement and working <laughs> with people in the climate movement more broadly, is that you need to also think about your own sense of self-care. Where is the best place to put my energies? One of the things I see a lot of is burnout in the movement and people feeling like, they're just such at such a low ebb. They want to walk up the streets, grabbing people by the shoulders and shaking them. What? What are you doing? What are we doing? So my my sense is, unless you really want, unless you've got the energy and you feel like your relationships are close enough, you know, to try this out at the dinner table. I think the first thing to really talk about is just really understand why people feel the way they do. And for your cousin who just listens to 2GB, my first question is, oh, is 2GB the main place you get your information about climate? And for me, 
one of the most powerful things, and I do this every now and then on Twitter, and I think the reaction that I get on Twitter um, is a bit of an indication of how effective this is. So sometimes when people have a go at me about renewables not being able to, you know, meet our energy needs, one of the things I really enjoy doing is retweeting stories about that already happening. (laughs) So what's already happened? Like we've just had a – we've just had – you know, some achievements in Tasmania, mm. um, in South Australia, the kinds of projects that were lampooned by 2GB a couple of years ago are now making enormous amounts of money. One of my favourite examples is is the tomato, the solar-powered tomato farm in Port Augusta, which is creating jobs um, for people who had actually been in, in, a, in a town that had been abandoned by the fossil fuel industry. So there are tonnes of examples all around Australia that we don't champion that give us a sense of what is possible right right now and in the near future in relation to renewables. So sitting down to Christmas lunch, <laughs> the first question is to my cousin is, oh, that's interesting. Uh, where do you get your climate information from? Yeah. <laughs> right. And then I think part of it is also recognising that we get it too, a lot from, you know, The Guardian and all the rest of it. and and, and Rebecca Huntley's Twitter feed. And uh, <laughs> Right. Look, it's really difficult. And in the end, I think one of the things that we see from the research that we do and the research I'm doing at the moment, which which segments Australian communities around climate and how they feel, is that you don't always have to convince people about the climate science to convince people about the solutions. And broadly, about 90% of the population thinks, wants renewable energy to provide our energy needs, understand that coal and gas, there are, well, they might amplify the amount of jobs that the coal and gas industry can produce domestically, but they're not naive about, for example, the fact that the coal industry um, contributes to pollution significantly, which contributes to health and things like coal seam gas. Even even Alan Jones can agree that coal seam gas is not a good solution <laughs> to our energy needs because of the consequence it has on a whole range of things, including, um, you know, food security and, and farmers. So, so there are ways, I think, I'm always looking at ways to, not to sidestep, but negotiate through conversations to keep those conversations going as part of an ongoing um, challenge that we all have to, to head towards the solutions as quickly as possible. This is a very easy thing for Rebecca Huntley to say, <laughs> a researcher who is researching all of yeah. Australia's climate values yeah. and segmenting yeah. people into demographics. Uh, if you're not uh, Rebecca Huntley, uh, should you read up on the latest IPCC report oh, before wow. going into Christmas? <laughs> well, that's a really, really good point. One of the things that's fascinating in the work that we do on people who are alarmed about climate change, which is definitely you and me, is when we ask people what's their biggest... The biggest challenge they face, the biggest obstacle to talking more about climate change or doing more, is they feel they don't know enough about the climate science. And to tell you the truth, you don't need to know that much. <laughs> you only and 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 you only need to know enough to help you have that conversation. And in fact, in the work that we do with segments of community, the only segment that feel like they absolutely understand the climate science and are really confident in talking about it. What segment is that? What you could guess? Uh, nerds. Deniers. <laughs> oh, right. They're the only group that genuinely feel like I know all the climate science, I'm across it, right. and I'm really confident talking about it is 9% of the population that's deniers. All the rest of us feel like we can't talk about it. Why? Because we actually respect the expertise that sits behind the climate science. Right. We know that if 
pretty much every single scientist in Australia with a PhD says this is happening and it's a serious problem, we need to believe them. Because for whatever reason, and I've I've thought about this, we we just Australians generally respect expertise. So there's, there's, ex- there's exclusions to that, but in general, when we say where should we be getting our information, the CSIRO, the Bureau of Meteorology, we trust them. Nothing kind of highlights that more than the crisis of COVID-19, I think. Like when you compare Australia to America, like watching Australians fall in line with the quote cops yep. uh, is more interesting than watching Americans try to grapple with their freedoms of not wearing a mask. No, that's exactly right. And while Pete Evans can, can get <laughs> A certain way, <laughs> there is a point where everybody goes, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so we yeah, are I mean, kind of lucky that way. On a rational fear, we have been making fun of those outliers because they are so funny on Twitter and, yeah. you know, their social media is hysterical. I think making fun of them is the best way forward. <laughs> but we do need to be vigilant because one of the things that's really clear is that is that the more they get an opportunity to circulate these blatant untruths, mm. the more people assume they have followers. Yep. So what? Is, and again, the, the research has shown this time and again. When you ask people who believe in climate change how many deniers there are in the community, they always put it at 20 25%. It's 9%. So we, those views are amplified and as a result we think they're more widespread than they actually are. I totally agree. Like talking with Matt Keane the other day on Irrational Fear, I was like, mate, what's up with your party? Why, why are they full of climate deniers? He's like, well, Dan, I, I would say majority of liberals believe in the climate science and want climate action. It's just that we've got a few people in the federal level who, yeah, yeah. who, who are making all the noise. And yeah, I was like, I well, that's, that's, right. that's so interesting. I'm more prepared to accept that there'll be people in the community who are climate deniers and their job is not to run the country, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? They're accountants, they're teachers. It doesn't matter. And in the end, I think... Banging our head against a wall to convince them is a waste of time. However, if you're in Parliament, you have a larger responsibility. What you're saying is there are six climate deniers you need to change the minds of. Well, we're not going to change their mind. We need to change the minds of the people who elected them to say they deserve better representation. That's happened in Warringah, and I won't be surprised that in the next election you'll get a lot of those climate deniers have a significant scare, certainly in the lower house. I mean, it's one thing to, and this is the thing that 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 in the book on denial and the chapter on denial, I say this. There are times where I fantasise about being a climate denier because my life would be a lot easier. I mean, I could I could give up what I'm doing now and and pursue my love of making jam for a living. <laughs> what I mean, or whatever, or designing, you know, designing a modernist dog houses. I could do whatever I wanted to do, you know, because I, and I would be released of this kind of dual passion, fear that I have around climate change and feeling I need to do something about it. So I get why people deny it. I get why people want to push back on the reality. But I cannot get that people who represent the community in Parliament cannot see the opportunity that we have right now, the economic and other and broader opportunities we have on acting on climate, because for the first time in a long time, we don't have to 
turn ourselves into knots to make a case for renewable energy being something that's going to be good for people, for jobs, for pollution. We don't have to make that case. That case has been made, which is why people like Matt Keane <laughs> can make that case in the Liberal Party. So that's what I don't get. Because I, there's an insane amount of money to be made. There is a lot of money to be made. There is a lot of benefits to communities to be made. I see it all the time. I think one of the most um, infamous or famous versions of that is that the um, Dalesford community yeah. with their with their one wind turbine yeah. turned to two wind turbines. Now they're an exporter yeah. of electricity for the And community. the original investors are making money. That's great. Yeah. Isn't it? It is, it's, it's how everyone. can you, I mean, you just can't, there is just, I mean, it, all you need to do is add Labrador puppies and it's the most, <laughs> it's the most wonderful story. It's an almost unmitigated, wonderful story. I'm seeing a theme here. You invest in renewables for your community, then you can go and make modernist dog houses. <laughs> I think that's... <laughs> Right, for those Labrador puppies, yes. Uh, what's interesting about your book is that it's kind of like um, when you look at the chapter list, it kind of reads like um, a therapy session. Yeah, uh, Guilt, fear, anger, denial, despair, <laughs> hope, loss, love. Uh, why didn't you just call it eat cold love? Uh, that would have been... <laughs> oh, well, look, it's interesting because um, I know you're going to be talking to Sarah Wilson and we've been friends for a long time. I think she and all of my friends who are very focused on emotion in their lives think it's quite funny because I'm the ultimate rationalist, right? <laughs> I did a law degree, did a PhD. <laughs> they constantly tease me because I'm not spiritual, I'm not emotional, or they're you know, I'm, I'm not particularly emotional. I think I can count the times I've cried in the last 10 years probably on one hand. I think you and Sarah have written companion books in many respects. Yeah. Your book is kind of research. It's, it is rational. It's still me. It's it, still, it, I'm still the, ever the researcher. Yeah. yeah, still the researcher, but it's like it's it's a different kind of book to Sarah. Sarah's is very spiritual mm. in, a, in, in a kind of journey. Yours is, is very different based on lots of other kind of aspects. Mm. Do you think you need kind of both in your world? We need tens of thousands of voices and Sarah is one voice that will appeal to certain groups of people who might pick up my book and not like it other people it will be Sarah's will be too spiritual and they'll want to kind of understand the science but there is an overlap in that Sarah is actually interested in the research like she's not a she's not a Pete Evans guy she's not kind of you know not completely distract you know distance from the research her her book's got a lot of science in it it has a lot of science in it and we have those conversations and for me there's an emotional personal story in it that I wouldn't have normally put in my work but it was important to be able to acknowledge that because it's what drives my climate activism and it's part of my climate story and if, and that's what we need, more people developing a climate story, whatever that might look like. And to cl- clarify that up, what you're mm. talking about is your kids. I mean, you're, yeah. uh, you talk about at the beginning of your book about mm. how you kind of got into this. Yep. You, you kind of acknowledged a little bit earlier on in our chat that uh, you're kind of a, a Jenny-come-lately to the climate <laughs> I scene. I am, <laughs> yeah. How does that feel to kind of come late to the climate scene? Have, do, do climate activists look at you and go, where have you been? Like, I'm very... I'm very gentle in what I when I identify what have been some of perhaps the tactical mistakes made because I wasn't around you don't say (laughs) that whole Adani convoy that was a big mistake wasn't it (laughs) I mean I'm very careful about I don't say it like that by the way that's going to sound bad in the transcript that is going to sound really bad if it's pulled out because I never doubt that what people are trying to do is get to a goal that's bigger than theirs right so I know and I know there's so much pain and suffering and genuine love in the in the climate movement 
and also there is just okay, what's going to work? It's one of one of the things that fascinated me about the climate movement when COVID hit. Because when COVID hit, every other sector that I was involved in, all other workplaces, just kind of froze in the headlights. Everybody knew in the climate movement was like, okay, what do we do now? Like they were just a part of that. They just had such get up and go. And visit. So it's like, how do we take what we were going to do, understand COVID and keep going? Mm. And and actually it sustained me. in the, So I've, I feel like I'm getting so much from being involved with people and also there's a willingness and hunger for some new um, people who are prepared to spend their time helping in a collaborative sense. So it does feel like I've come late to it, but I would say this when occasionally when I feel guilty about that, is that I have spent 15 years understanding how Australians feel about everything else <laughs> and how they feel about climate change is connected to that. Yeah. If you're economically anxious... You're living in regional Queensland and you always feel like government is letting you down. When you talk to somebody about climate change, they're not responding to the science, they're responding to all of that, mm. right? If you live in the inner city like me, in you behind the turmeric latte curtain, <laughs> we have particular views about and particular values about... Mr Evans, tear down this wall. <laughs> that's right. And then that's going to... So I think, in a way, it's been a circuitous path towards climate change, but all the understanding and knowledge that I've got from that... So I've worked for years with the superannuation industry, so understanding the role that it can play now in climate change is actually important. I've spent years working with the big supermarkets and understanding that, that's going to help as well. You know, you have spent this time doing this. What do you think are the things that connect all those elements together? Look, I think the first thing we have to we have to get is that there has been a consistent um, a consistent um, and very effective campaign to make climate change a question of cultural identity politics, mm. and unraveling that is near difficult in the time that we have available. So we have to understand where people come culturally and socially to the issue in order to address it. So yeah. that's the first thing I would argue. This is why somebody like Matt Cain, and, and that has to inform our tactics. Right? It's, it, is, it is so strange to, I, I am not a Liberal voter. Mm. I have, haven't voted Liberal for a very yeah. long time, yeah. uh, if ever. And uh, it's one of those things where seeing Matt Cain operate at the level he's operating uh, and making the noise he is on renewables is genuinely exciting to me. Oh, it's so exciting. It's like, oh, my God. No, no, no. It's like, so exciting. That is the champion we need. I feel so, like that's the champion we need in those circles to change the culture. No, that's right. In fact, when he first started talking, I remember just looking at him and thinking, it was like, you're probably too young to remember this, it's like when you were watching Funniest Home Videos and there's a father doing something and you're like with his kids and you're like, at some moment he's going to be kicked in the nuts and I just don't know how. That's how I felt looking at Matt Cain. I thought... What's going to happen? He's out there talking like this. And think, that was my question. Is he going to be are, hit my, in the nuts soon? <laughs> my question is, are you going to be assassinated? Like- no, I really, I really watched. It was that same, that same moment of kind of nervous tension, laughter about when he was going to be whacked, but he hasn't. Um, As someone who worked on Funniest Home Videos, Rebecca. Oh, did you? Are um, you joking? The, the lexicon is groin hit. Oh, is it a groin hit? Yeah. <laughs> Greatest groin hits. Is what, I was is what waiting yeah. for a... God almighty groin hit, and it hasn't come. 
And in fact, it's unlikely to come just because of what happened, what they managed to push through Parliament, New South Wales Parliament last week, which is that they are just going to be creating, they are putting those building blocks in. And once that happens, once a community starts to see the benefit, they don't turn back. Mm. They don't turn back when they know that those things are going to work. So, no, absolutely. And in fact, one of the big um, insights coming out of this book was the importance of, in the same way that the voices of deniers have been amplified, we need to amplify the voices that, that I suppose unpick or surprise people. This person cares about climate. That's why I was so interested in Farmers for Climate Action. I write a lot lot about faith leaders talking about climate from the point of view of their faith. And conservatives of all kinds, really critically important. And it's important because different people have to see themselves as having as as people like them talking about climate and talking about the benefits, or we don't make that connection. One of the things you kind of suggest in your book is yeah. to not use catastrophic language. Yeah. Um, this podcast is called a rational fear. It's <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's a it's kind of a joke on yeah. on using catastrophic language. Yeah. And Rebecca, using catastrophic language is fun. Yeah, I, oh, absolutely. I, I don't it's know fun. if you know that. Um, so, like, but why shouldn't we be doing that? Well, I mean, again, it's all horses for courses. For some, and this is why understanding who you're talking to and where they are now and where you might be able to shift them is critically important, right? Mm. If you, even five or six years ago, when I, wa- when I was concerned about climate but it wasn't the main part of my life, I actually did have some friends in my life who were just would use this language and I would just kind of, you know, shrink away. I remember, you, and I'm, again, you might be too young for this, I remember years ago when Bob Carr was Premier on, on New Year's Day, he released this statement about climate change. And I remember thinking about what was at stake for the environment. And I remember thinking, he's gone mad. Like, <laughs> I, I just couldn't understand it. Now you look back at it, he was obviously reading the climate science, you know, it's all, you know, many things you want about Bob Carr, he genuinely cares about the environment. Yeah. And I wasn't receptive at that moment for that. But something happened and now I read The Uninhabitable Earth and other things um, and listen to some of the climate science, and which I do every now and then. I don't do it all the time, but it's important to keep my eye focused on the task. Mm. So I'm receptive to it. It's absolutely clear that there are other audiences that are completely unreceptive and may never grow to be receptive. Um, we need to think about how can we shift them, political behaviour, consumer behaviour, you know, be, for other reasons, right? Mm. We need to inject a sense of urgency for them that isn't about walls of fire and all the rest of it is about something else. So you just so it's all about, I'm not saying never use it, I'm saying understand the impact that it's going to have. So understand the audience, why you're using it and what you want to get them to do. For me, I would dip into something like, the uninhabitable earth, maybe once a month, or I'd tune in to a science. I just the other day, I was listening to some of the latest science, just about the challenge of not just reducing emissions but drawdown, like dramatic. Mm-hmm. Like draw- when I started thinking, because all, all of my work at the moment is completely focused on renewables and, mm. and emissions. And then I started thinking... That's just one side of the problem. Yeah, I was just thinking, draw down, draw down, draw down, you know what I mean? And I started to go... And my friend who was also on the other Zoom texted me and she said, are you, are you, are you having a panic attack too? And I said, yep. And, but it, it was important because I walked away thinking, actually, I need to start doing more research on 
the, the dual language around drawdown and emissions reduction. I this have to get my head around it. This is probably a good place to mention that you can look after the carbon emissions from your car with a Go Neutral sticker yeah. for $90. <laughs> Go neutral will offset 3.5 tonnes of your carbon uh, from your car and you can put a sticker on the back of your car. Can you know I just did this the other day? And then uh, check out the link in the show notes and uh, five bucks of that comes to us. Now, this is uh, this sounds like <laughs> this sounds like completely fake, but actually I did this a week ago. Oh, so you've got a go yes, neutral sticker? Yes, yes, I do on the outside of my car. So I from found, listening to our podcast? Not from listening to your <laughs> podcast, sadly, but... <laughs> But I saw them on Instagram and I thought because – so I'm in the situation where I want to get an EV but I'm probably about three or four (laughs) years away from getting one. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in a bit of a, you know, COVID has meant I've left my marriage so I don't have huge amounts of money. So I thought this is a really good bridge between what my car is now and when I'm going to get an EV. I mean, it really doesn't do anything except virtue signal to other people that you're a good person. But that's not (laughs) about – but in this area, and I'm deep behind the turmeric latte circle, it's all about the virtue signalling. I cup shame people. I have a go and have the sticker on my car. I have so many – I mean – here, you could get beaten with a Hessian bag if you walk around with a plastic bag. Uh, thank you so much, Rebecca, You're for welcome. coming on Irrational Fear. I just want to maybe do a quick role play with you. Sure. Um, let's pretend we're sitting down to Christmas oh, wow. lunch. Okay. Uh, I'll be my cousin. Okay. Uh, and you can talk me around climate change. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, in, in these kinds of environments, just ending with a conversation that doesn't end in turfing some kind of, you know, bread roll over the table is a success. But let's go. Okay. Well, you know the problem with renewables is just to have the baseload power to uh, to power the country. That's what we need, baseload power. Why do you think that? Oh, just it's everything I've read. Oh, <laughs> read from where? I read in the Daily Telegraph, uh, Andrew Bolt, oh, oh, Ray Hadley tells me all the time on 2GB. Base low power. I've also done some reading on some great blogs I can't remember the name of and you'll right. probably never be able to find on right. Facebook. All right, okay. Well, I think, I think look, there, there's definitely issues. We need to make sure for people to really embrace renewables, we really have to know that they can feel confident that it can deal with whatever happens. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's really interesting is the CSIRO, the chief scientists, they say that stuff is already happening. Like in places like South Australia and, and Tasmania, this is already happening. So I'm not that worried about baseload power. Yeah, well, what about those windmills that give people cancer? Yeah, I don't think that that's a thing. <laughs> but I understand. I mean, I'd be interested if you wanted to share that material with me. I'd really like to have a look at it. I've seen plenty of Facebook posts about people who've got ringing in their ears from windmills. Yeah, no, I think, look, I think that's, we probably have to put that to one side at the moment. I get it. Again, some people like the look of windmills, some people don't. But you know, the other day I was reading just in the Hunter Valley, okay, so the asthma uh, rate for children in New South Wales general, generally is at about 12%. In the Hunter Valley, it's 18% and it's all about the open um Open, you know, open pit coal mines. Yeah, so but where are those people going to work? They can't work in windmills. Well, the other thing, well, actually they can. They can work in renewable energy. But I suppose the other thing that we constantly do, and it's understandable because, um, you know, none of us, you know, none of us are, are economists at this table, 
especially, you know, jobs in that sector in the Hunter are getting less and less and less over time. Over time, they're projected pretty much to disappear. You know, lots of the big renewable and lots of the big um, fossil fuel areas want to get out of the Hunter Valley. There's lots of other opportunities in the Hunter Valley for jobs, especially yeah. if the government gets really good about investing. Yeah, but coal is such a big exporter for us. You know, we, we basically run a whole country on, on fossil fuels leaving the country. We have, and that's been such an important driver to prosperity in Australia, I get that. I think one of the things that really worries me is a lot of the people that are buying that coal are massively investing in renewables, made real commitments to reducing emissions, and so we're going to start to see a lot of that decline over time. We've got to be ready for what happens when it falls off. China is building 10,000 new coal coal power plants a day. Do you know that? Wow. Gosh. Really? Did, and 10,000 a day. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. It's a big place. Yeah. Again, look, can you send the stuff about the windmill and cancer stuff? Can you also send the stuff about the 10,000 coal mines? I'd really like to have a look. Anyway, we sure. definitely – do you want some chicken? I would love to have another conversation <laughs> with you about this next Christmas. <laughs> anyway, have you seen that Netflix series called The Crown? Apparently it's really good. Don't know what it's about. So what I've learned from that is uh, <laughs> you're a coward, Rebecca, a coward. You could have had me on the ropes. Kind of slandered me. Yeah, it's really no, hard to have these conversations with, pe- with people that are in your family, isn't it? Yeah, but do you know what the other thing in in the book? And I'm a big fan of Anna Rose and work really closely with her. I once asked her, "Should you ever argue with a climate denier?" And she said, "Only if other people around prepared to listen are overhearing the conversation." That is a wonderful Anna Rose thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's true. So it's such a great strategy. It is. So what? I wasn't going to change your mind there, but anybody at the table who doesn't want to talk about climate change has seen two things. Us be able to have a conversation which didn't deteriorate into name-calling. Two, there was lots of different bits of information that I threw in there, one of which is going to spark some kind of attention. But if, if people walk away from that conversation thinking that two people on completely different ends of the spectrum can have an evidence, what kind of evidence base conversation about something that they normally see is a completely irresolvable issue, then that itself is a tiny, you know, when one conversation is not going to turn people around, but a series of productive, I'm not talking about respectful necessarily because it wasn't necessarily being (laughs) respectful because you kind of tell by the end of it I was over it um, and didn't, was like, yes, well, there we go. That's part of it. You know, that is, so that for me, that isn't, for me, the fact that I didn't lose it and say, Listen, you knuckle bogan, shut the up is a great achievement given I've already had two glasses of champagne and it's been a trying year. I mean, it's hard to say that and take you seriously when you've got a paper crown on your head. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. So there we go. It is hard. and And look, there are times where I fail miserably and there have been times, <laughs> there was one time recently where um, one of my daughter's friends started doing all these weird things with plastic bottles and not putting them in recycling. And I said, listen, do you know that your body is awash with a million tiny bits of microplastic? And he looked at me absolutely terrified and ran away. And my, my, sister, my daughter said to me, 
Mom, like everybody knows you like like your environment, climate change, but please don't scare my friends. And I'm like, okay, okay. But it would, it would drive me nuts. He was like doing all these weird things with plastic and putting them in the wrong place. And I went nuts. So even even the people who write books get it wrong. You just um, have spent 40 minutes telling me how what a rational person you are. <laughs> That's true. Even even the most rational people lose it. We even the most rational people lose it. Yeah. Well, Rebecca, I'm thankful that we have less modernist dog houses and less preserve in our life because we've got your brain to help oh, us you. think about these problems. Thank you very much. And we got your podcast too. Yeah, well, that's right. That's it. You wanted more conversation. In your book you say more people should talk about climate change, so I started a podcast. Good on you. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. And that was Rebecca Huntley. She's pretty funny for a market researcher, wouldn't you say, Lynn? She really is, and I learnt so much. Turns out the best way to communicate about climate change isn't just screaming at all of your relatives and friends and (laughs) neighbours. Now, you've worked with Rebecca in the past? Yeah, I have worked with Rebecca before. We met through Climate Reality, um, and once I learnt that she was working on this book about, you know, how do you speak on climate change, I think I ended up being a really great resource for her because I've made so many of these mistakes. I was able to just detail (laughs) top 100 fails that time that I spoke to the bus driver about it that time I spoke to a school teacher about it here are all of the things I went and did wrong that how time, could you fix all of this that time you had to speak to Al Gore about it yeah and I like used the wrong word I mean so complicated um but I think you know given her understanding of what the actual Australian public is like her ability to still figure out how climate messaging resonates regardless of political alignment, regardless of like other values alignment, I think is really powerful and would definitely recommend skimming through the book um, or gifting it to a couple of people over the holidays. Next up is Sarah Wilson. We had a great chat about her book, This One Wild and Precious Life. Pretty interesting book. It's not too dissimilar to Rebecca's in that it kind of delves into climate anxiety and kind of tries to help you with how to have conversations with people, how to deal with climate anxiety on your own, Um, but it's much more inwardly facing and kind of is about everything. It's about the whole gamut of of Sarah's climate anxiety experience and she kind of goes on this big rambly journey all around the world to kind of uh, talk to experts and understand nature and humans in context with nature and it's, um, it's really fascinating. Here's our chat. You're listening to the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Let me start by asking you, how is your heart at this moment? <laughs> um, thank you for reading my book that closely to quote lines back at me. Um, my heart is in, you know what, it's actually in a really solid place. Um, this often happens after I've finished writing a book. My books are tool, self-help tools and they take me to a place where I have to get vigilant and real about the shit I share with everyone. Um, you know, when you write a book about quitting sugar, um, you can't walk down the street eating a magnum, for instance. And so when you write a book about waking up to this one wild and precious life, you've got to do exactly that. So I was actually, that's where I was, I'm at. I was actually curious as to why you didn't call the book I Quit Carbon. <laughs> it doesn't – it's not evocative, really, is it? I mean, I think sort of a, an ex-ABC journalist or um, a scientist, an Australia Institute, you know, sort of consultant would write a book with that title. I found the book um, – I think I tweeted in the first few pages as I was reading the book. I think I tweeted at you. I, I think this book is an extraordinary – artifact for someone in the future to discover because it feels like it captures a real contemporary anxiety 
uh, of the moment. Um, is that why you wrote the book? Yes, although I had to write it in real time because it was due before the Australian bushfires and then before COVID and then before the Black Lives Matters issue um, reared its head, all of which is related, of course. It's the same what I call itch, that kind of dready kind of angsty, cringy itch that we're all feeling. But um, I came off the back of writing First We Make the Beast Beautiful, which is that internal journey to understand, you know, well, for me it was to understand (laughs) my bipolar and kind of general weirdness um, and to share that story with people who felt the same. But then, um, you know, as I was doing publicity for that and moving around the world and also keeping up my work as a climate activist, I realised that the anxiety was now global and collective and it was way bigger than our own personal stuff, which was a relief in many ways because I think a lot of our anxiety that we feel is about the fact that we should be attending to something bigger than ourselves right now at this time in history. So, yes, I was watching, listening, angsting, going into really deep, despairing holes, and then I thought I'd better write a book about this and really try to find a hopeful path, and I struggled as you know, Dan, because you saw me in the process, you know, around Bondi, well, trying yeah. to nut it out. Well, no, you are a very competitive. You are a very compelling leader as well. Like, you know, I did see you around Bondi, and you would, you would, you would um, berate me for not going to protests and stuff like that. And then, you know, I'll inadvertently end up going to those protests. You're because- mentioned in the book. Am I? Yeah, did you miss that bit? You probably didn't identify it. I mentioned those protests, the September... I remember them, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the September 2019 climate protests and there were seven people that I targeted on the morning of the protests <laughs> and you were one of them and all of you went in the end. <laughs> yeah, I mentioned it in the book. Yeah, because I saw you at a cafe and you said, are you going to the protest? And I thought, I thought about it, I'm just really busy and I ended up just calling my fiancé and saying, you want to skip out of work and go to the protest? And that's exactly what we did. And all of you I saw within 48 hours of the protest, some I saw that night celebrating. They were having a, a cocktail to celebrate the fact that they'd got engaged in it and um, – all of you I saw within 48 hours, and I went into a dark place when mm. I came across all these people I thought were engaged who weren't rising to this opportunity, right, that was being laid out in front of them. Totally, yeah. And uh, But then every every one of you went and brought people along and then got back to me and told me that you went and said it was awesome. <laughs> oh, I cried. I really, I cried with joy and it was just a reminder of how awesome humans can be. Oh, it's also a reminder of the leadership abilities of Sarah Wilson who can get, <laughs> who can activate people to do things. <laughs> Seven people at a time, yeah. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, that is one of the things about your book is it's intensely personal but it also talks about how we all have the power in ourselves to affect change mm. um, for people who are um, uh, consider themselves as powerless people. That's not true. Everybody has an iota of power. How do you help those people realise the power that they have through this book and how do you encourage them to use that power? Well, it's a seductive combination of statistics, right, that are backed by sort of men in white lab coats, so people go, must be legit, um, as well as sort of metaphor and story and reminders of what's happened in the past, which I think also helps people to realise that this is not 
humanity's first rodeo, you mm. know, with this kind of thing. The great hyper-colour T-shirt pandemic of the late 90s, we survived that. I yeah. think we can survive this. Oh, I mean, yeah, <laughs> human hardship, we've done it. <laughs> I think one of the statistics that people really resonate with and get fired up about is the 3.5% figure of hope, as I call it. So Erica Chenoweth, scientist at Harvard, decided to look deeply into what activated change. And she looked at all the peaceful protests from 1900 to 2004 and analysed each and every one of them and found that where 3.5% of any given population, whether it's of a school, a town, a village, whatever, a country, get together and activate and unite peacefully, the change happens. Mm. 3.5% is not a lot. Mm. And I think a lot of people find that really activating and it's everyday people just getting behind a movement and turning is, up this is not just a community like a nation but they could be considered to be communities like a workplace or a school a school yeah yep, exactly so whatever change that you want to happen that's going to actually take humanity forward you only need three and a half percent so that's one thing I'll say to anyone who feels like what's the point how is my little bit going to make a difference the second thing that I try to use is these sort of various metaphors and the way that humans work is we galvanize at an exponential rate right so change or care begets care action begets action exponentially and I use the example as we like to in this sports crazy country (laughs) of the footy match or the baseball match or whatever it is the baseball game where the losing side is down by three points or whatever and there's 30 seconds left in the game and everybody's kind of going oh god this is all over and then out of nowhere the losing side kind of galvanizes this kamikaze spirit. I call it kamikaze like where they toss out all the normal rules and just go for it. And there's this kind of group soul movement or moment. And way too many games in history have gone down with that sort of final try in the last 1.5 seconds or the final, you know, home run or whatever. And so this is what we do. We rise to the occasion in this exponential kamikaze way when we give a shit when we care enough about something. I certainly know through university days that, you know, when <laughs> I know I've got a deadline coming that it really makes me work hard. Although I have to say that, that a metaphor really resonates with me, particularly when we were running the TV show Tonightly, when we knew we we were ending the show and we had six weeks left on air, we threw the whole rule book out and we made some of the most incredible, memorable things. Yep. People actually started turning up to the show, wanting to come and watch the show. Magic happens. <laughs> yeah. I call it magic. It is, yeah. It's, yeah. It, it is a strange period and I do feel, I feel so on board with you at this moment. I feel like this is the moment now that everybody needs to be pulling in the same direction uh, and aligned. And this is, anybody who's not could be left behind and we need to encourage them to come along with us. Yeah, I even, I guess the third element that I put to all of this, and this is something that is missing from the climate movement and has been for as long as I've been on this planet, it's the fact that we haven't actually shown how joyful and charming this can be. And I think I've mentioned this to you before, Dan, that um, I went into a dark place trying to find the hopeful path forward through this f***ing cluster, right? (laughs) And I almost gave up, you know, was about to tell my US and my Australian publishers can't do this, haven't got an answer, Mm. sorry, somebody else will have to come up with one. And my meditation teacher sat me down and he said, Sarah, the thing is you love living this way You've got to show us how this can be charming. You've got to show us how this is better than the status quo. Make it look sexy and fun. And I 
realized what he was getting at and and that shifted the whole dynamic of my book and where I went with it like I was like absolutely that's how humans work this has got to be something charming it's got to be something that we go game on this resonates this is beautiful this is wild and that's where that wild and precious um, notion came into play our nature is to give a shit our yeah. nature is to care and to rise to bigger things than ourselves and we haven't had that dialogue particularly in Australia for the last 30 years of economic opulence, you know, continued growth. We haven't had that dialogue of going to our edge, firing up, caring at a level where we overextend ourselves. And, but yet that is our nature. That is where we rise to our best selves. That's when we're happiest and we're most vibrant and we're fending and we're creating and we're resilient. We become resilient. And, um, so that's, that was sort of my aim. So I think that's the third element to selling this, you know, give a fuck kind of message <laughs> to people who've become, you know, overwhelmed and numb is that, hey, this is awesomely vibrant and enlivening. And, you know, like I live minimally and I ride a bike everywhere and I don't do it because I'm trying to be a martyr. Mm. I do it because I love it. Like living any other way gives me this like headachey feeling, you yep. know. I'd much rather ride a bike somewhere and smell the air and run into people along the way, like not literally, but um, and, you know, live and breathe and see things mm. and be engaged because otherwise why are we here, mm. you yeah. know. The book is interesting. This One Wild and Precious Life is really interesting because it is a journey itself. Uh, I feel like it's, uh, it's rambly. Not only is it rambly, Literally, because you go on a lot of walks, but also figuratively. Was that on purpose? Yeah. You might remember the bit where my father refers to the book on the family WhatsApp. Is <laughs> the big group. book of everything? Yeah, Sarah's, Sarah's book, book of, of everything. everything. Yeah. Right? Because somebody was, you know, my family, my family aren't um, known for reading my books. So they generally rely on dad to kind of read it and do a summary. So he just referred to it <laughs> as Sarah's book of everything. Look, Everything got us into this mess yeah. and everything is going to be required to get us out of it and it is overwhelming. So the way I do it, I think, you know, I do these little tiny mini chapters. Some of them are a paragraph long, some of them are maybe up to three pages long and the topic requires swapping from science to philosophy to spirituality to my own personal kind of reflections on it so that it humanises it and makes it you know, it gives a bit of a pause for people mm. to sort of absorb it at a human level. So I am unapologetic about it. And I wrote First We Make the Beast Beautiful in a similar way because anxiety requires an, anal an analysis of all those factors as well. And so I do dance between them all and we shouldn't try to kind of bring it all in together into a, into a seamless conclusion because the complexities of life don't operate that well. Exactly. They do ramble and they go off over here. And, and part of it was to get people comfortable with that itself, with the uncertainty and the lack of order and the chaos because that is what we're in, right? Did it help you with your climate anxiety or your eco-anxiety yeah, writing it? it did, 100%. That sounds very emphatic but I actually, I, it actually did. I couldn't write this book until I did have that path of hope mm. um, until I believed it and really owned it and and kind of stepped into it and um, and and felt that it was going to be the guiding sort of force for me going forward in the second half of my life mm. I was Dan, I was really struggling to see the point of my existence mm. um, halfway through writing this book and 
really the, the, the struggle as I try to grapple with ways of solving this that I share in the book were real. I was writing it in real time. Um, so, but I do. You can feel it. Yeah. You can feel it. You can feel like the ups and downs of your of a, what is a very personal journey. And I think a lot of people are going through that, but they don't necessarily articulate it because we don't have a forum for it. Mm. Everything's sort of – there's just too much influx and there's not enough discernment going on, right? So – but I did have to get deliberate about all the shit that I was telling people to do in my book. So, <laughs> you know, I do have to live out the practices. Like I said, I can't walk down the street – eating a magnum anymore. Well, as, I now as, have to be, you as, know. As one of your friends that lives in your suburb, I can't walk down the street with a paper cup uh, filled with <laughs> coffee anymore. Uh, Do it at your own In case Sarah Wilson sees me. <laughs> I know, that's true. That became a bit of a theme in the book, didn't it? But it's actually just one of those. I mean, people go, oh, you know, one more takeaway coffee cup's not going to make a difference. Yep, sure, that's absolutely right. And, in fact, recycling and cutting out plastics isn't even the tip of the iceberg. It's all climate change. We've got to accept that. Mm. And so that happens at a policy level and industry and the big, big end of, uh, of town. But it's the optics, right? Mm. It's the care begets care. We need to see more imagery of people giving a shit. Mm. This has got to be the dominant discourse. Otherwise, we will feel hopeless. And particularly for, dare I say it, white middle-class men, they are the demographic missing from the climate debate and the climate um, activism space. It's it's white men that are we need to get on board. So when I, whenever I see a white um, man in Bondo with a takeaway coffee cup, I will <laughs> go out of my way and suggest that they get a key cup. Well, if they're a white man in Bondo, they've probably also got a podcast, so you can go on their <laughs> podcast and tell, talk to them about coffee cups. <laughs> Ergo, me sitting here in your lounge room right now. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because I think that is interesting. I feel like everyone is so busy with their lives that climate change sits on the back uh, burner for a little bit. Now, I'm in the luxury of this position where I'm being supported by a fellowship and I can create this podcast and talk to great climate thinkers like you and other people and I get to kind of use my power to kind of have some sort of discourse about climate change and encourage others to um, apply pressure on those in power to do something with climate action um, through this medium. But if you're just a, a bloke who's got a job at a construction company, a white bloke, mm-hmm. what do you say to them? Well, I actually have a dialogue with a white bloke in a construction company in the book, if you remember, <laughs> uh, who walked around with a takeaway coffee cup in a caf- while seated at the cafe uh, and he becomes um, a bit of a thread in, in the story. What do I say to them? Um, well, I say to anyone, um, and this is not my idea, it ca- comes from the American Buddhist nun Pema Chodron, she says start where you are. So if you're a nurse um, working night shift, if, if you're a busy parent with three kids juggling, whatever, um, that's your starting point. And I use the example in the book of someone who lives around the corner from me and she's a mum with two kids, pretty much what you're describing, doesn't feels powerless, hasn't got a forum. And she just said, so again, it was these strikes, you know, the, the protests in mm. September in 2019. And she was like, oh, look, all the mums at my school, the parents are just going, it's too hard to get into the city at that time of day with their kid. And she said, maybe, maybe I could all get a minibus. And I said, do it. And I get to get onto Eventbrite, set it up as a thing, you know. 
you can charge the tickets. Anyway, it sold out within an hour. She'd upgraded to a coach. She ended up upgrading to two coaches and she got over 150 people to that protest. Mm. She started where she was as a sort of fed up mum with uh, with access to Eventbrite mm. and Murray's coaches, you yeah. know. So um, I thought that was a great example. And then I shared that on my social media feed and then I know that a number of people around the country did exactly the same thing at the last minute and it managed to get a coach load of parents and students who otherwise wouldn't have gone to that rally. I think starting where you are is the perfect place because in your own sphere you have influence over uh, over other people, your peers, your friends, your family, yep. and that is that is completely. And once the you right start, as you know, and this is why I focus on keep cups, right? Yeah. Once you start, once you buy a keep cup, I, my friend Kate's husband Adam, he went and got himself a keep cup. He was so proud of himself, right? He, <laughs> you know, thought he was doing, and then he started taking a real interest in recycling right. and the recycling laws in the in the area, and then it started to grow further and further. So, as I said before, action or care begets action and care, and so it generally grows. And then you feel empowered, you feel hopeful. The best remedy for hopelessness and despair is to actually just get engaged in whatever form possible. Even if it's just listening to the news an hour a day, you feel like you're part of it. Yeah. Uh, As a comedian who puts on shows about climate change, I've recycled so many jokes. It makes me feel so good that I'm doing something for the planet. And then you just keep doing more and more of it. Exactly. (laughs) Do you get people pushing you back uh, on your climate credentials? Um, not so much. I think because nobody, um, well, most of the world struggles to understand the climate science and to be an expert in it. And I think what we've worked out, and I think climate scientists are wonderful like this. I interviewed I, I interviewed 14 different climate scientists, three of whom were involved in the IPCC report. Um, and um, they are very good at admitting they're not the best communicators. So one of them, actually, Joelle, um, and I've forgotten her surname now, but she was a lead scientist on the paper. She said to me, listen, our work is done. The science is in. And now we need to hand the baton to people like you, Sarah, who can communicate it. I have to say that was one of the biggest uh, eye-opening moments of the book. Reading your book, I was like, Oh, yeah, shit, yeah. Why are we even trying to convince people it's real anymore? We need to be pushing on powerful people to make change. That's right. Because the science is done, everything else needs to roll over. Those who don't believe can forget it. It's about affecting change right at the top and getting that change in place. Yeah. The scientists have been working in this realm for ages. The activists have been working and just tirelessly. And so often I was speaking to activists who were saying something similar. They were saying, we have been going at this for 30 years and we are exhausted. All we need you to do is come and join us, you know. Don't start up a new climate movement. We've got them all here. We've got the data, blah, blah, blah. Just help us out, you know. And um, so, yeah, I I, I don't get it as much in this climate space because I don't think that there's too many people. Well, I think everybody feels a little bit we're scared of it. We, most people can't actually digest all the information and feel that they've got a really good handle on it to what? be able to give me a hard time about what I'm saying. Well, that's true. But also you've got a huge audience. Like I feel like the Sarah Wilson reader, consumer, fan, 
Do you feel like you are bringing them along to a whole new topic that they haven't thought much about? Yeah, and I have a technique for that. Um, you know, I've come from MSM, <laughs> hashtag MSM. Mainstream media. Yeah. <laughs> can't trust mainstream media. I can't trust them. No, 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 no. But you probably can trust somebody who comes from mainstream media <laughs> right. and has uh, come out the other side, knows the dark side. Um, oh, God, if we're not going to trust mainstream media, who are we going to trust? At least they actually have There's to be held accountable. There's a very good Facebook page that I follow called Climate Sucks and uh, <laughs> you should follow it. It's very got a lot of good information. Have you a watched Pandemic? <laughs> I tried yeah, no, to. I couldn't one. find it. I couldn't find it yeah, because the mainstream media pulled it down. That's it. That's it. I th- what my technique, and for anyone out there who's wanting to replicate this technique, is I tend to seed things with my audience. So I'll start talking about this, writing about it in quite gentle ways, asking questions, like genuine questions, because I'm wanting to find out where people are at, where their pain points at. And I actually held wine and chat groups as I was writing this book trying to get from people what it is that they were really struggling with what aspect of the science what aspect of the movement you know where where were they getting stuck so I do that and I start the conversation about three years before the book comes out Mm. and so I do blog posts I start to you know really start to build momentum so by the time it comes out people are already 80% on board right They've signed on for the journey. They're signed on for the journey. They trust me. They know that I've been working in this realm and they go, oh, this is where it all went to. So mm. it's a great marketing tool, but it's in terms of coalescing people around an idea, I think it, it's got to work this way, mm. you know. It slowly I start where you are. I started as somebody who could blog about this and share Instagram pictures and things and I copped the blowback back then. And to answer your earlier question, I think I've spread the – blow back out over about three years and now people just accept I am where I am. I think that's uh, a change for anybody. It's painful and, and <laughs> growing is hard. That's right. <laughs> I actually don't mind it though, Dan. I think you've probably worked that out about me. I try to moderate it. I kind of be the nice girl and then I come out with something that really shits people and then I go into the comments and just tame it all down. Well, hang on, you know. (laughs) It is a sport and I try not to get too upset about it or too invested in it because it's not about me. It's about people's fears and, and, and we've got to bear that in mind. And so to relate this back to people who might be listening to this who whose own sphere of influence is probably a lot smaller than Sarah Wilson's, is that what you recommend they do? Like in the lead up to Christmas, just send a couple of text messages <laughs> and say, you know, hey, you know, we should we shouldn't use plastic plates at Christmas. Well, I <laughs> and, would And then come Christmas lunch, let's sign this petition. Yeah. We're going to a march. Yeah. Look, um war- a warm-up, um, as you know as a comedian, you need the warm-up. You need to get people's laughing <laughs> muscles um, activated. I think that the best thing that you can do is the best place to start is where you are with yourself. The most convincing and to go back to that sort of turning point in the writing of my book, I had to live and breathe it as somebody who believed my own message and did find this way of living fun, exciting, dynamic, life-affirming because that is the most powerful way to get a message across. So anyone who's about to go and face recalcitrant relatives over Christmas, <laughs> just freaking strap on your conviction, pack and, your keep cup. And, and uh, fill yourself up with charm. You fill yourself up with charm and, yeah, and uh, and just be your message. Yeah. <laughs> be your message. That's pretty mm. nice. Yeah, I like that. When you're thinking about projects like this, do you have an ultimate goal in mind, like an ultimate outcome? What's the best possible outcome for writing a book like this for you? 
Does it stop at the book? No. Again, this is my marketing background, my <laughs> MSM background for listeners who are wondering who the hell I am and and why I'm here or how I got to be here. I was the editor of Cosmopolitan, so I sort of learned how to do marketing and to take an idea out in all kinds of monetizing directions. So I generally see that a book's with my books, I generally have a life in them of a couple of years. So I try to ensure the message goes further and the conversation from my point of view goes further because I write books because I'm curious. And while I do do a lot of the research and the lead up to it and then I write it, part of it is also a little bit of a I'm, I'm kind of poking life. Yeah. I'm wanting to see what comes back afterwards. And then that will then probably direct me into my next project. But in this case, yeah, I always knew that this was going to be a complex conversation. It's a book about everything, as my dad said. I needed to get it out there and then I needed to go and have the conversation with people in a in a way that made everybody feel safe to discuss this stuff mm. and to show them how to have this discussion out in their communities. So I'm doing a, a tour with Live Nation which works to this effect. It's like a a giant adder. I mentioned the adder in my book. It's a West Bengalese sort of tradition of talking about complex issues over hours and hours of cups of tea mm. in large community settings. So that's what I'm going to be doing. But then I also have these book clubs. So I've drawn up a book club um, sort of sh- schedule or sheet that people can use and then they can use that to go and discuss some of these complex issues with friends and family. So It's like a training tool slash info bomb slash... And I just keep going and going and I often don't know exactly where it needs to go so I have a few structures in place and then, you know, and then I... I just see what comes forward, but I will keep the momentum going. I don't see it stopping at a book and then I move on to something else. It's it, it's almost the starting point, the launch pad for mm. the bigger discussion. Do you think this climate discussion will roll into your next big project as well? Yeah, I'm not quite sure what that is. It's starting to, like it always takes me six months after writing a book um, to start to get the energy to go get fired up about my next thing and it's starting to percolate. I kind of have a feeling of where it's heading but it'll probably segue off this into bigger and deeper and wilder. But to answer your question about where do I want this book to take people, like what was my aim, Mm. the initial working title for the book really up until very close to publishing was wake the, you know, fire the up. And essentially that is what I'm wanting people to do Um, for selfish reasons. I wouldn't mind, you know, completing my allotted 85 years on this planet in some kind of comfort. And books with the word f*** on the title do very well in airport lounges. They do. If you have the word Paris and f*** on it, then it'll work. Yeah. Look, let me just be really brutally honest. I want people to fire the f*** up, do everything they can. I want to galvanise. I want us all to rally together, have a wild time saving this one wild and precious life. That's what I'm after. And start where you are. Start where you are. I think that's a great place to end. Where we started, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Sarah Wilson, thank you for coming on the greatest moral podcast of our generation. <laughs> I feel very, very privileged. <laughs> GM Pook. The greatest moral podcast of our generation. That was the wonderful, great, and dare I say, famous Sarah Wilson. It's great to have her on the podcast. Always like famous people, Lynn. Yeah, they're the best. Um, A nice joke there. I quit sugar. I quit carbon. I mean, it all rolls really well. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, You read her book? 
I have read her book, actually. And I have to admit, you know, as someone who already speaks climate, none of these climate books are for me. When I read them, I'm always like, no, but you should be doing more. And I was like, I don't think anyone wants to read the book that would be written for me. Um, I think one of my big takeaways about, you know, Sarah Wilson's book, though, is she's had such a fascinating life. And I just really love how she's really not just trying to tackle climate change, but like fundamentally change the relationship that she has with capitalism, consumerism, and how all of that interlinks with all of these other like C word things. So, you know, she talks about COVID, of course. And I think if you can go from like hosting MasterChef to being an advocate for climate champion, I think there's hope for all of us to figure out how we can make climate an integral part of our identities. Absolutely. How can you uh, be a climate champion as well? That's the big question for you listening to this. Um, Well, what I do is I make a podcast, Lynn. Uh, I don't know about you. Uh, you know, I just like live and breathe it and get a little bit angry and have to remember to read hot tips on how to talk about this issue that's without a, freaking others that's, out. That's the problem when climate change becomes your job and is your hobby and is also an existential crisis for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's why no one's writing books for me because, like, I um, it, it's it's a niche. It's a niche place to be in. Speaking of c words, Christmas is coming up next week, and we do have a special uh, Rupert Dagas who does all of the comedy voices for all the sketches of Irrational Fear will be joining us to go through the year's best sketches we've made on the show so uh, I can't wait to hear how that comes about Um, but that's about it for Greatest Moral Podcast of Our Generation thank you Lynn Thank you, Jan. Can't wait to be doing this again with you next year in 2021. Yeah, a big thanks to Road Mics, the Bertha Foundation, Go Neutral, our Patreon supporters. Also big thanks to Jacob Brown on the Teppanyaki Timeline. Also a big thank you to Dr Rebecca Huntley and the wonderful Sarah Wilson. Until next week, there's always something to be scared of. Good night. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.